Good morning, everyone. Great to see you. As uh, Owen said, my name is Rob. I'm one of the elders here. Uh, it's a privilege to be going through God's Word with you today. We're going to be looking at Psalm 32. Um, I'm so pleased to hear you know, numerous people this morning saying they've enjoyed the Psalm series so far, and, and I have personally as well. So we're going to be looking at Psalm 32. So if you've got a Bible, you can start to find it now. If you haven't found your way around the Bible much, if you're a new, relatively new Christian, Psalms is right in the middle. So if you open the Bible right in the middle, you'll probably land on Psalms. So we're going to be looking at Psalm 32. Uh, which will be behind me in a moment. Um, now, Psalm 32 today, it's written by King David, as it tells us there in the word, and it's titled, Blessed Are the Forgiven. So right from the off, you can see where I'm going today. We're going to be talking about forgiveness today, uh, forgiveness from God. Now, this psalm has been described by many as a song of thanksgiving, a celebration of God's forgiveness. So we're going to be looking at that today. But also others would argue that it's an instructional psalm because it gives us instruction about how uh, we are to receive God's forgiveness. Um, Martin Luther, you might have heard of him um, from the Reformation. Uh, when he was asked about his, the best psalm, he said Psalm 32 uh, and amongst, uh, alongside some others that also address forgiveness as well. So we're going to be looking at a good psalm today, I think. Now, we're going to be looking at a forgiveness that comes not from obeying the law, but to those who believe in God and trust in his forgiveness. And I would have to agree with Martin Luther. This is a great psalm, um, so I feel the weight of trying to do it justice today. If I'm honest, it's not one I've stopped and dwelled on before, but actually, this last few weeks, looking into this psalm, preparing for today, I've just found it so enriching, and I hope that comes across today in what I bring out of it. It's packed with truth. We see the gospel there. And... It's actually full of themes that you find throughout the Bible as well. And you know, when I was thinking about it, I think this psalm is one of those uh, passages in Scripture that you can kind of see the, a sweeping view of, of the Christian life. So as we read through it, you know, you'll see that it begins with joy and thankfulness. It shows us that, uh, that joy comes from forgiveness. It shows us that sin disconnects us with God. But confessing and saying sorry to God is the only way to forgiveness. And when God forgives, he holds nothing against us. In this psalm, we see David's eagerness to share this good news with other people so that they can experience forgiveness too. It picks up the theme of future judgment, where the forgiven are protected and delivered. And some of those songs touched on that today, didn't they? And then there's a call to live in relationship with God, walking in the way that he instructs us to. And it ends with praise and trusting in God. It's all here, the sweeping view of, of, of what it means to live a Christian life. What about Christ? Well, he's not named in here, but as we've looked at already in the Psalms, and, we, and Sai touched on this, Jesus himself did, said that all scripture is about him. So as we look through it, you'll see that actually this scripture, this Psalm points to him as we go. So without further ado, let's read Psalm 32, and hopefully you'll be behind me. So Psalm 32. Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity, and in whose spirit there is no deceit. For when I kept silent, my bones wasted away, through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. I acknowledged my sin to you, and I did not cover my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the iniquity of my sin." Therefore, let everyone who is godly offer prayer to you at a time when you may be found. Surely in the rush of great waters, they shall not reach him. 
You are a hiding place for me. You preserve me from trouble. You surround me with shouts of deliverance. I will instruct you and teach you in the way you should go. I will counsel you with my eye upon you. Be not like a horse or a mule without understanding, which must be curbed with bit and bridle, or it will not stay near you. Many are the sorrows of the wicked, but steadfast love surrounds the one who trusts in the Lord. Be glad in the Lord and rejoice, O righteous, and shout for joy, all you upright in heart. I'm just going to pray. Father God, we thank you for your word. We thank you that you've spoken to us through scripture. I pray, Lord, today you'd help me to... uh, expound this psalm for all of us to meet with you and hear your words today. May you, through your spirit, make this word alive to us today. May we hear your words today. Amen. So as you see, this psalm is so rich, and in the time I've got, I'm going to try, my aim is to start from the beginning and go right through, and uh, hopefully touch on every verse and unpack something. But I'd like to unpack it in three main areas. We're going to look at David's joy in forgiveness, David's experience of forgiveness, and then David's instruction on how to receive forgiveness. So, David's joy and forgiveness. We're going to start at verse 1 and 2. The psalm opens with the word blessed or blessed. And here, blessed means happy, similar to Psalm 1. If you were to make a list of the things that make you happy, I wonder what would be on your list. You know, we all find different things that make us happy, don't we? Perhaps riches. You know, maybe wealth brings happiness. Success, doing well. Maybe it's relationships, being around the ones you love, that brings happiness. Good health, maybe it's your favorite sport, maybe it's new clothes, the latest possessions, you know, the best technology. You know, we all look for things that make us happy, don't we? And, and many of these things are good things. But from what I've said, actually, a lot of those things are temporary. They don't last forever. But David's pointing right from the start to something that has eternal implications, something which uh, will last forever. And that's forgiveness with God. He said, blessed is the one who is forgiven. In other words, happy is the one who is forgiven. Would that be on your list of what brings you happiness, forgiveness? Last week, Tetsi looked at uh, Psalm 24. It's interesting how many people touched on that this morning in worship. And he was looking at what it means to enter God's presence. And as we saw from Psalm 24, it says, he who has clean hands and a pure heart can stand in God's presence. The Bible's clear that our wrong thoughts and actions, what the Bible calls sin, separates us from God and needs to be dealt with. The slate needs to be clean, and it's only available to us through forgiveness. We can't do it ourselves. And that's why David starts here with blessed or happy is the one who's forgiven, because it means peace with God. It means access to God and his presence. It means pardoning from any wrongdoing completely. And let's be clear from the start, this pardoning is not for people who live a good life. It's not even for the religious. It's for anyone who knows they've done wrong and need forgiving. That's who the pardoning is for. Spurgeon wrote about this, and he said this, Blessedness is not ascribed to the man who's been a diligent lawkeeper, for then it would never come to us, but rather to the lawbreaker, who by grace, rich and free, has been forgiven. That's who it's for. So what does it mean to be a lawbreaker? What do we actually need forgiveness from? Well, David mentions uh, three things in the opening verses, transgression, sin, and iniquity. And they probably all sound quite similar, don't they? And they are, but there are slight differences. So transgression, sometimes it's translated as rebellion. It's the refusal, refusal to be subjected to a rightful authority. In this case, a rebellion against God's authority and his law. 
It's like when a child refuses to follow their parents' instruction, or when a, a pupil kicks back at the school rules. That's rebellion, isn't it, against authority? Sin is about missing the mark, and I think we said this before from the front. It was originally an archery term. If you missed the target, that was called a sin. So in biblical terms, we see that any action or lack of action that falls short of God's intention to how we live is a sin. And iniquity is about the idea of things that are twisted, crooked, perverted, immoral, or unfair. For example, adultery is a a twisting of the correct relationship between man and woman, isn't it? So transgression, sin, iniquity. Why does he mention them all? I think two reasons. Firstly, let's not forget, these are poems, aren't they? The the Psalms are all poems. And so he's using repetition to drive home the point, the extent of the sin that we've been forgiven from. There's nothing that God can't forgive. Amen? But also, by emphasizing these specific three, he's also referencing God's character. And you'll see in Scripture, often those three go together. For example, in Exodus, you'll find it. In Exodus, God rescued the people, or the Israelites, from Egypt. God uh, gave Moses the Ten Commandments, made a covenant with his people, and then immediately, if you know the story, the people turned from God and built a golden calf and worshipped that instead. And then we see in Exodus 34, God's response. God revealed his character, and he declared of himself this. God said, The Lord, the Lord, the God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. That's what David is celebrating here. God is gracious and merciful, and he forgives everything out of his love for us. He also mentions deceit here, doesn't he? Which is a sin in itself, perhaps an easy one to define. To deceive is to hide the truth, to lie, to cover up, to make excuses. And we know that to be true, don't we? That we often cover up what we do and hide it from others. It's a natural response, isn't it? We'd rather people don't know what we've done or what we've thought. We feel embarrassed and ashamed. But we can't hide anything from God. And as this psalm shows, we shouldn't try and hide it from him either. He says, blessed is the one whose sin is covered. And we see in this psalm, when God forgives, he covers our sin like it's gone. But he can't cover it up if we're trying to cover it up. I'll say that again. God can't cover up our sin if we're trying to cover it up. We need to be honest and give it to him first, and he can cover it up and remove it. So David's emphasizing the extent of sin in different forms, all of which have been forgiven for him. In other words, God looks at him and sees absolutely no wrong at all. God holds nothing against him. It's a bit like imagine if you went to court for a, a law you broke, and the judge says to you, no charge, you can, go, you can go free. That's what it's like when we get forgiven from God. No charge, nothing held against you. So we see here from the start, happiness is from knowing you are completely forgiven. Knowing you have done wrong, and yet God, in his mercy, chooses to accept you and gives you that clean slate. When God completely removes it, he no longer holds it against us. For example, in Psalm 103, another of David's psalms, he says, God does not deal with us according to our sins, nor repay us according to our iniquities. So sins, iniquities again. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his steadfast love towards those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgressions from us. And similarly, Micah, the prophet Micah said, Who is God like you, pardoning iniquity and passing over transgressions? 
I'll jump to verse 19. You will cast all our sins into the depths of the sea. That's the extent of what God does with our sin when we give, come to him for forgiveness. When God forgives, it's finished. It's covered. It's gone. Amen? So that's why David starts with happier those who are forgiven. Moving on to verse 3, we're going to look at David's experience of forgiveness. He switches here. It's a contrast from the joy of knowing forgiveness to now the weight of unconfessed sin, the agony of carrying guilt and not seeking forgiveness. He said, when I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night, your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. David's not speaking hypothetically here, but speaking out of his own personal experience. This is King David, the greatest king in the Bible, the one who God said was a man after his own heart. And yet here he is sharing his own personal experience. He was a man like us. He knew what it was like to fall short and to suffer guilt and shame. But through his experiences, he's showing us his before and after, the effects of unconfessed sin versus the joy that comes through confession that leads to forgiveness. He says he kept silent. In other words, he didn't acknowledge it. He tried to keep it up and keep it to himself. We see he's empty. He's lost his strength. He's exhausted. This is the same man who penned all these amazing psalms he says he's reduced to groans. He's got no words. He can't sleep. He feels the weight of God's convicting hand upon him. This guilt has affected his whole being, physically, mentally, spiritually. Now, a lot of commentators suggest that this Psalm 32 was written alongside Psalm 51, which is one many of you might know. And Psalm 51 was written when, uh, in David's response to a sin that he'd committed. He'd committed adultery with a woman named Bathsheba, and then arranged for the murder of her husband. Now, perhaps Psalm 32 is written alongside, and if it is, then that perhaps fills in the gaps for us, isn't it? Maybe that's what this experience is that he's talking about. But even if these two Psalms aren't related, which a lot of commentators say they're not, then we don't need David to tell us what it feels like to feel guilty, does it? I'm sure we've all known the turmoil of guilt, something we've done. And as we see in this Psalm, if that conviction is from God, it's not a bad thing. A commentator named Davis says this, God is so good to you that he refuses to allow you to be comfortable and happy in sin. Isn't that good? Perhaps we don't think about that God's goodness in that way. He refuses to allow you to be comfortable and happy in sin. And we can see David was certainly uncomfortable. To the Corinthians, Paul wrote this, Godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret. In this context, Paul was writing to the church in Corinth because, uh, about their behavior, and it caused them to grieve. But that grief led them to repent and change their behavior, to be sorry and turn and act a different way. Paul loved the church. He didn't want to upset them. Of course not. He says he regretted making them feel grief. But in the same words, he also says he rejoiced that that grief led them to change. And that's what David's expressing here, too. He felt God's heavy hand upon him, almost too much to bear. But then perhaps without it, would he have repented? So at this point, I just want to challenge you or encourage you, if you can relate to David's experience, if you're living with guilt or unconfessed sin and you're feeling God's hand upon you, can I encourage you to bring it to God as David did? In sharing David's experience, we also see, thankfully, part two of this experience, and that's his journey to finding forgiveness. 
He says this, I acknowledged my sin to you. I did not cover my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. So instead of saying silent now, he's confessed. He acknowledged his sin, he owns it, he takes responsibility for it, and he brings it to God and finds mercy. You can almost feel the weight lifted in these verses, can't you, compared to the last ones? And again, back to Psalm 52, he expressed a similar understanding that it is God who he has wronged. Psalm, 52, sorry, Psalm 51 opens like this. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love. According to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity. Cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. So David knows that his sin is against God. Now, of course, it's important to remember that our wrongful actions don't just affect us, do they? And they can affect others too. David had to face the consequences of his actions in his life, just as we will in ours. But what David's showing us here is that his sin first and foremost is before God. And like David, forgiveness is available to all of us too. Okay, moving on to verse 6. This bit, David now switches again. This time it's an instruction of how to receive forgiveness. He says, Therefore, let everyone who is godly offer prayer to you at a time when you may be found. Surely in the rush of great waters they shall not reach him. You can see David's urgency here, can't you? To share what he's learned with other people. There's a joy he's found. He can't keep it to himself. He's found the joy of forgiveness and wants, others, wants us to experience that too. Again, perhaps in a link with Psalm 51, some say that perhaps this is his uh, way of keeping to the promise in Psalm 51. Because in Psalm 51, he promises God that after he was forgiven, he said, I will teach transgressors your ways and sinners will return to you. So perhaps this psalm is his way of teaching us. And what does he teach us? It's quite simple. His instruction is, is simple. Pray. He says, offer a prayer. So, so sorry, he says, everyone who is godly, offer prayer. So the question is, who's the godly? Let's be clear. The godly are not the perfect. Okay? The ones who have got it right and never do wrong. That's not the godly. It can't be, because if that's true, then the godly don't need forgiving, do they? The godly are those who trust in God and his promises. And what kind of prayer? It's a prayer of confession like David's. Acknowledging what you've done, being honest, not covering it up, but confessing it. A prayer of confession is to admit that it's only God who can deal with your sin. And through confession comes forgiveness. David urges us to pray at a time when God may be found. What does that mean? Um, I think it means two things. I think it means confess quickly, and it means confess before it's too late. So confessing quickly, you know, when is this time when God may be found? It's now. David showed us how wretched he felt when he kept silent. I'm sure we can all relate. So don't let time pass before confessing. Don't cover it up like David did. Keep a short account with God. Confess quickly. This applies to all of us. As Paul wrote in Romans 3, we've all sinned and all fallen short of God's glory. We've all missed the mark. So when we sin, not if we sin, when we sin, when we get it wrong, let's be quick to confess. God is quick to forgive. 
John wrote a really good encouragement to us all. In 1 John 1, John writes, If we confess our sins, he, that's God, is faithful and just to forgive our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So be quick to confess. And it's also important to say here that uh, being accountable to someone else is both helpful and biblical too. You know, like uh, it was Nathan, the prophet Nathan, who challenged David about his sin with Bathsheba and, and her, her husband. Nathan challenged David, which led him to, be, to, to repent. So can I encourage you to get someone alongside you who will challenge you? So confess quickly. Also, I think it means to confess before it's too late. If David says there is a time when God may be found, in other words, a time when God will accept your confession and forgive us, then by default there must be a time when he won't be found. This doesn't mean God's going to disappear, he can't, but it does mean there'll be a time when confession is too late. Think like Noah's Ark in the Old Testament. There was a time when the door was closed, time was up, and the flood came. The Bible is clear that there will be a day of judgment when Christ returns. All who have confessed their sin and put their trust in his saving grace, they'll enter into eternal life with God because there'll be no sin held against them. But for those who have not acknowledged Christ as saviour, then they will experience an eternity away from God's presence. So this is about a prayer that you make when you first choose to become a Christian. It's a prayer of faith you only need to make once, thanking Jesus for his death in your place. Because in Christ we're forgiven once and for all. As Paul wrote in Romans 8, there's now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So like David's warning, or take David's warning, don't put it off. I was listening uh, recently um, and I heard a story about a church leader who was on call uh, for a local hospital that they live nearby. So just in case a, a patient at the hospital wanted to speak to a Christian leader, to perhaps talk to or pray with, they had always had someone on call. And so this church leader was awoken in the middle of the night from a patient who wanted to see them urgently. The patient had just been given a diagnosis and not long to live. So the church leader woke in the middle of the night, raced to the hospital to see the patient. And when they got there, the patient told him it was a false alarm. There had been a mistake in the test results. And so the patient said to the church leader, for a moment I thought I might need you to confess, but it's okay, I've still got time. It's true, isn't it? When time is short, perhaps confession becomes a bit more urgent. But when you think you've got time, we'll do it later. If that's you today, if you've been putting it off, can I encourage you, and I will give you time at the end to respond. Don't put it off. The rest of verse 6 and 7 also emphasize this coming judgment. David writes about the great waters that won't reach us, that God is a hiding place who preserves us from trouble and surrounds us with shouts of deliverance. This is not a promise that the Christian life will be easy, that once you become a Christian, you won't face any difficulties. Ask anyone here, you know that's not true. The Bible is clear that, in fact, the opposite is true. But these promises are for a future time, a time when God will protect us from that judgment that comes. In the Bible, great waters, floods, storms can often be pictures of judgment. Think of Noah and the ark. God sent the flood as a judgment on the world, but those who trusted in him were hidden in the ark. They were protected and saved from the great waters. Think about the story of the Israelites coming out of Egypt. They've been held captive, but Moses led them through the great waters, which parted to deliver them to safely, safety. But their enemies who pursued them didn't make it through the waters. 
These are pictures of a future time when God will protect and preserve us for all eternity. When judgment comes, those who have offered a prayer of confession and trust in Jesus will be delivered. They'll be into God's perfect presence for all eternity. So as Paul writes in Romans 10, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. As I said, I'll give you an opportunity at the end to respond if that's for you today. Paul, uh, sorry, David also instructs us in a, uh, in a way that we should go. This again is a picture of the Christian life. Notice the order of things. Confession of sin leads to forgiveness first. And then there's a way that we are to go, a way to live. It's not the other way around. And I think, sadly, there are many who get a misunderstanding of this. I know from speaking to friends and colleagues that uh, there's an assumption that to be you know, a good Christian, or to be a Christian at all, is to behave in a certain way first. That you know, they could never be a Christian because they don't act the right way. You know, they think that Christianity is a bit like trying to get into a sports team, going for tryouts. You've got to train first, you've got to be good first, and then maybe if you're good enough and prove yourself, then you can get on the team. Christianity is not like that at all. God does call us to live a certain way, and yes, the Bible sets a very high bar for our behavior, but this is a response to what God's done to us first. There was a woman who was brought to Jesus, uh, and the Pharisees and scribes were ready to stone her for her sin. And this is where Jesus famously said, he who is without sin can throw the first stone. And one by one, they put their stones down and walked away. And then what does Jesus say to the woman? Neither do I condemn you. Now go and sin no more. Uh, Jesus shows mercy and forgiveness to her, but then also calls her to live differently. He doesn't just say, I don't condemn you, off you go. He says, I don't condemn you, now sin no more. I was thinking, what can we compare this to? Imagine a person who is in a massive amount of financial debt due to their bad spending habits. Not due to the financial crisis or cost of living, but someone who has chosen to buy expensive things they don't need and are now in debt. Imagine someone else stepped in and said, I'll pay off your debts, I'll pay what you owe, and their account will be settled. That's not the end of the story, is it? That act of grace of paying off the debt is not the end of the story, because that person still now needs to take responsibility to make better choices so that they can continue to be debt-free. It's an opportunity for a fresh start to make wiser choices. Being forgiven is not an excuse to sin again. It's a fresh start so that we can now live in the good of the way that God wants us to live. So that again, being forgiven is not an excuse just to carry on sinning. And David's final challenge in verse 9 is this. Don't be like a horse and a mule without understanding. Again, what's he mean? Well, in Jeremiah, he also talked about horses in a similar vein that might help us understand it. In Jeremiah, God says this, No man relents of his evil, saying, What have I done? Everyone turns in his own course like a horse plunging headlong into battle. And here God's saying that people who don't turn from their sin are like horses just running into danger without any thought. That's what David's referring to. And the mules, we think of that saying, stubborn as a mule. Again, David's showing us there's a way to go, a way for that we are to walk, and that's God's way. If you want a horse or a mule to go where you want it to go, you've got to force them, you've got to harness them. David's saying, don't be like that. 
God doesn't want to drag you along kicking and screaming. He doesn't want to force you into doing something or else. We're not robots, are we? Followed, following instructions without any understanding. We've got a God who is gracious and merciful. He wants to get alongside us. He wants us to be in a relationship and choose to follow his way. Not to earn our forgiveness, but because we know we are already forgiven. Think about a mule in the Bible. You see them, they were used to carry heavy loads. You'd pile up load after load and then drag the mule along doing all the hard work. In Matthew 11, Jesus spoke to those who were weighed down by the burden of religious legalism. That's people who feel the constant pressure to live a perfect life, to always get things right, and then perhaps God might love them. The problem is we don't ever be good enough, will we? And then Jesus said this to those people. He says it to us. Come to me, all who, are, who, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I'm gentle, gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. A yoke is a wooden frame that uh, joins two animals together. During the summer, um, Andy, I can't see where he is, uh, Andy made us a, a, a yoke, didn't he? And he demonstrated it here in the front of the church. So a yoke was used to join two animals together, and then one animal would then lead the other alongside. And that's what Jesus is saying. He doesn't want to restrain us or force us anywhere, but wants us to choose to allow him to lead us. Jesus promises a rest from our soul, an eternal rest for those who find forgiveness, and an eternal rest from striving to earn our salvation. Okay, nearly there. At the end of this, the psalm, verses 10 and 11. David ends here with a call to praise. He writes about trusting in the Lord, about being glad in the Lord. So as we finish this psalm, how is the Lord able to forgive? How can we trust him to forgive? Well, not only does the Lord promise to forgive, but the Lord came himself to forgive. And we see in scripture, Jesus is the Lord yet he was born as man, fully God and fully man. The Old Testament continuously points towards a Messiah, a coming savior, and that's Jesus, who was himself a descendant of David. We see Jesus is the fulfillment of this psalm. Right back to the beginning, David said, blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity and in whose spirit there is no deceit. Throughout all history, only Jesus can take that claim. He's the only one who ever lived a perfect life, who never sinned. He alone is the man whom, whom God counted no wrong and found no deceit because there was nothing to hide and nothing he needed forgiving from. And yet, Jesus took our place and took our punishment for our sin. Paul writes that for our sake, he, God, made Jesus to be, no, to be sin who knew no sin, in that in him we might become the righteousness of God. So our sin is laid on Jesus and Jesus' righteousness is laid on us, often called the great exchange. What David describes here as the effects of unconfessed sin was nothing compared to the anguish that Christ went through on the way to the cross. His phys physical, emotional, spiritual impact that he faced knowing that it was the only way to deal with our sin. We read in scripture that Jesus was led like a lamb to the slaughter who remained silent in the face of accusations and lies. We see here David keeps silent to cover his own sin, yet Jesus kept silent to cover ours. The soldiers stripped Jesus naked and uncovered him, shamed him publicly, yet he did nothing to deserve it. At the cross, Jesus felt the full weight of God's wrath upon him. 
God's hand was heavy on Jesus to crush him for the sins of the world. Christ was separated from God so that he cried out, my God, where, why have you forsaken me? Jesus experienced a time when God could not be found. He emptied himself. His strength was dried up to the point of death. And as we sung earlier, the grave could not hold him, though, could it? Amen? Christ was delivered through death and rose on the third day. We can trust in the Lord to deliver us because Christ was delivered first. And now he's inviting us in the way that we are to go into a relationship with him. Amen? Amen. Can I invite the band up, please? And I'm going to finish with a song. But before then, I'd love, us to, I'd love to pray over two, uh, two groups. Firstly, if you're here and you've not made that prayer of confession where you choose Jesus as Lord and Savior, then I'm going to lead you through a prayer. And if that's you, then pray after me. And then we're going to spend some time, perhaps, for the rest of us, or all of us, responding if there's anything that we need to bring to God first. So if you've never made that prayer and you'd like to, then pray after me. Dear God, I'm sorry for all the wrong I have ever done in my life. I know my sin is against you. But thank you, Jesus, that you came and died on the cross in my place and paid the punishment for what I deserved. Jesus, I invite you to be Lord and Savior of my life. And I ask you to fill me with your Holy Spirit now that I may walk with you for the rest of my life. Amen. Amen. If you've prayed that prayer for the first time, I'd love to speak to you afterwards. Can I encourage everyone to stand before we sing? As David urges us, let's be quick to confess. Let's just spend a moment before we sing. Let's just bring to God anything that we know we need to confess. Let's keep a short account with him. Father God, thank you that you are merciful and loving and forgiving. Thank you that by Jesus' death on the cross, you have paid for all our sin, past, present, and future. We thank you that you never change and you are forever loving and gracious and faithful to forgive. We confess our sins to you now and we say, Lord, thank you that you forgive. I pray, Lord, you'd fill us with your spirit, that we would be able to walk in the way you intend us to. And we want to be yoked with you, Jesus, that you would lead us. Thank you, Jesus, that you are so forgiving. Amen.